welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Colorado College, uh, David Hendrickson. His latest book, which I highly recommend, is called Republic in Peril, American Empire and the Liberal Tradition. David, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Your last book hits on a theme that you've emphasized throughout your career and in many of your writings, and that is the inherent tension between domestic liberty and the liberal tradition on the one hand, and an ambitious interventionist, some might say imperial foreign policy that emphasizes the maintenance of military superiority as a core strategic priority on the other. What is the tension here? And how do you think this tension is playing out in the context of the United States today? Well, there are a lot of dimensions to it. The most obvious dimension is that if you uh, spend all of your resources attempting to be militarily supreme across the world, you inevitably neglect uh, domestic welfare. Uh, that's one aspect of it. A second aspect of it is that the requirements of the national security state have uh, frequently impinged upon domestic liberty. The outstanding example of that is the uh, rise of the surveillance state. And we've had this enormous apparatus that's been built up. And uh, I think that that holds peril for domestic liberty. Uh, a third dimension of that is that it distorts uh, Republican decision-making. I mean, in a republic, the people should rule, uh, not the special interest. But if you have a military establishment that costs a trillion dollars a year, uh, those requirements inevitably uh, usurp the, uh, uh, the voice of the people. So those are three dimensions of that tension. And uh, I think all of them are important. You uh, wrote a recent uh, review of a number of uh, books by Robert Kagan. Um, and one other element of this tension between sort of an aggressive foreign policy and the liberal tradition is that in order to secure uh, that kind of foreign policy, in order to uh, carry it out, you've got to engage in... Um, illiberal means to serve liberal ends. I'll quote from your, from your paper, if you'll uh, forgive me. You say, the American imperial predicament um, is a, a problem where uh, the practitioners believe that illiberal means are the best ways of securing liberal ends, when in fact that cheap bargain destroys the fabric of democracy at home and is profoundly inimical simply by virtue of its manifest militarism to the pre preservation of liberty. Um, we have to contradict our own platitudes uh, about how the world should work in order to carry out our own foreign policy. Talk about that tension a little bit. Well, I would say that the remarkable thing about the American record uh, over the last 30 years under the imprint of neoconservatism is the degree to which we violated uh, our principles. I mean, we tout a rule-based order, but don't follow the rules ourselves. Uh, uh, imagine the outrage if uh, the Russians or the Chinese had assassinated an American nuclear physicist. Ah, well, that, uh, that would seem to be a violation of the rules. Uh, but when our allies do it, uh, we shrug our shoulders and uh, don't think much of it. I think, a, uh, 
a larger manifestation of this of this departure from uh, uh, liberal principles concerns the idea of regime change. Americans have gotten it into their head because uh, gotten it into their head that the idea that liberty is a precious thing and democracy is a precious thing. It means that we have a right to impose our system upon other countries. And that's a fundamental violation of the principle of national independence. Uh, it was so understood at the time of the founding, those issues were raised very extensively by the French regime's desire to spread liberty across Europe. And that was condemned by both Hamilton and Jefferson. I mean, both saw that principle of national independence at stake in the wars of the French Revolution, although they differed on who was principally in violation of it, uh, the Confederacy of Kings or the French revolutionaries. And for the longest time, that idea that of national independence was uh, at the heart of the American foreign policy tradition. It was the, at the heart, for example, of Franklin Roosevelt's good neighbor policy. And uh, out of this, uh, a kind of megalomania and surfeit of power that we uh, achieved in the aftermath of the Cold War, it became very widely accepted that we had a right to engage in all of these regime change wars or regime change operations short of war. There's a long litany of that, Iraq, Syria, Libya, now Venezuela and Cuba, uh, the list goes on and on. And uh, that's a violation of liberal principles that uh, I, I think is uh, very disheartening. The, uh, the other larger aspect of it is that if you're engaged in a war on all fronts against a, uh, a set of adversaries, inevitably, they're, they're uh, cost to that. And the temptation is to go beyond the rules. And the United States has done that on multiple occasions. With respect to regime change, you know, it's interesting. I think after the George W. Bush years and after the Obama years with uh, incidents like the regime change war in Libya, um, you know, I think the word regime regime change has become a kind of dirty word in American politics. It seems to be something that even official Washington, at least in rhetoric, wants to back away from as a kind of extreme policy of the past. But as you point out, and if you look really closely, this is still a fundamental part of our approach to the world. Back in July, um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo even made a not so subtle statement in a speech about China that uh, it is the American hope and possibly the American policy for the Chinese people to overthrow the, the regime in China. So, I mean, regime change against a, a uh, gargantuan great power like China is, is uh, even more absurd than one in, say, Iraq or Cuba. But this is still a fundamental part of our approach to the world, is it not? Yes, it is. I mean, it's certainly been under Trump. That's one of the most remarkable features of the Trump record is that he complained about all these terrible wars in the Middle East, and uh, all of which he supported at the beginning, uh, though he had the good sense to turn against them, against them at a fairly early date. And yet, his Secretary of State is uh, more wild on that principle than any Secretary of State in memory. Uh, I think they've even gone beyond what the Bush people did in several respects. So we see that playing out in a lot of different theaters in South America, for example, 
uh, I agree with you that Pompeo's rhetoric with regard to China points very much in that direction, just as the rhetoric of the liberal interventionist uh, under Hillary Clinton pointed in that direction under Russia, Cuba, and, and Putin. Uh, I think one of the worst aspects of that is the uh, is American policy towards Syria. Assad must go. That's been American policy for nearly a decade. And uh, that policy has been prosecuted in the name of humanitarianism. And the result is a gigantic humanitarian disaster, which I think the Biden administration seems determined to continue. You know, there has been some disagreement about uh, how to properly characterize Trump's foreign policy. And, you know, admittedly, it can be a little confusing. At times, the president has employed rhetoric and sloganeering that would suggest he's sympathetic to lots of the changes in U.S. foreign policy that, say, you and I want to see. On the other hand, as a matter of policy, we really have not seen fundamental changes. And the few scattershot attempts that Trump has made to actually put into place uh, some of these changes, like a withdrawal from Syria or Afghanistan, you know, he gets enormous pushback and the effort in itself seems half-hearted. So, I mean, there's this disagreement now about Trump's foreign policy. Do you think that that'll be cleared up soon? Or what do you think the legacy of these past four years of foreign policy will, will ultimately be? Well, Trump is a difficult uh, character to uh, wrap your mind around in terms of formulating a coherent doctrine associated with his name. Uh, I think it's absurd to call him an isolationist, as uh, David Sanger did recently in a New York Times article. But his manner of being in the world is very isolating. And certainly it's true that he's done a lot of things like withdrawing from all of these international organizations and agreements uh, that bespeaks a, a strong streak of unilateralism. Uh, in another dimension, uh, he really hasn't changed uh, in fundamental respects at all the larger American approach to the world, which is basically you can't have a decent world order unless you have hostile relations with Russia, Iran, China, and a host of other smaller states. Uh, what's different uh, with regard to Trump is that he simultaneously alienated our allies and uh, spoke of those alliance relationships as purely a matter of uh, protection from an imperial overlord, which required then uh, obedience and greater effort on the part of our sycophants. Uh, so that naturally uh, upset a lot of people, particularly in Western Europe. And the whole kind of conception of America's role in the world under Trump became a kind of empire of tribute. So that was a, uh, that was a jarring thing rhetorically. Uh, uh, that Trump brought to the uh, table. But the, the primary datum is that he still wanted to maintain hostile relations with all of our adversaries. And it's that project that's been at the core of the, uh, the so-called liberal world order. In that respect, he didn't change much at all, uh, even with regard to Russia. Uh, his Russia policy was, in fact, extremely hawkish in several respects. So uh, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty grim record. He, he had an opportunity to introduce some changes, but uh, you know, never really followed through. 
Uh, let, let me just point to one kind of fundamental contradiction uh, in that Trump record. Probably the most important idea that he brought to the presidency was this sense that America had been shafted by its allies. It was the burden sharing complaint. And no one had brought that charge forward with greater vehemence than Trump himself. So what did he do when he first came into office? Well, proposed an $80 billion increase in the defense budget. What is our defense establishment for? Well, it's for the support of allies across the globe. I mean, that's the whole logic of of, uh, this global military presence. And so there was a kind of fundamental contradiction that Trump thought that uh, he could somehow change that bargain. But the first step he took was to exacerbate the unfairness of it. I think one of the unique features of Trump's time in office is uh, the extent to which he has attacked and undermined longstanding domestic norms, um, hiring intelligence professionals versus political loyalists, uh, blatantly firing, I think, uh, five um, inspectors general uh, so that they could not properly scrutinize uh, Trump administration cabinet level processes. Um, now he's, of course, denying the results of the election uh, to to put a cherry on top. Do you think these developments possibly can accelerate the threats posed to American society and liberalism that the uh, that that its foreign policy already poses? Does this kind of add uh, a problem to the state of our government? Well, I think so. I mean. Trump has been a serial norm violator and has done and said things that are shocking in that regard. Uh, It's a question to me as to whether the Republicans or the Democrats most threaten that. Uh, I think the Democrats have also done a set of things, particularly in the last year, have come to embody a set of traits that are also uh, very disturbing. Uh, Yeah, Trump's attitude towards the election results is uh, pathetic and wrong. And it's an enormous breach of of etiquette, although it's getting better. I mean, we're recording on December 1st, and we'll see what happens uh, with regard to the interregnum. I think he'll ultimately give it up. Uh, But the Democrats did, uh, you know, basically justify or turn their heads away from a lot of violence this summer in the cities. And in effect, I think they gave their imprimatur to a lot of that and to a kind of mob rule. And I find that to be also to be deeply disturbing. I mean, imagine what would have happened had Trump won. And uh, I think there would have been trouble in the cities. And it's not clear to me that the Democrats would have accepted a result in which Trump won the Electoral College but lost the popular vote by 5%. So there's dangers on both sides in that regard. I think that, by and large, the, the Biden administration will be respectful of those norms. I I think that uh, they'll bring some uh, good manners back to the conduct of American foreign policy. And uh, so I'm delighted to see Trump go and to see some sort of a restoration in that regard. But as I say, I think the Democrats have some issues with regard to that, too. So let's continue on with that. As you as you mentioned, we are sort of uh, 
in a lame duck presidency awaiting uh, uh, the transition, awaiting the the inauguration. So Biden is president elect. We're in a we're in a state now where, you know, we get to see through the news who he might be thinking of for top cabinet positions and national security positions in his administration. Um, how does it look to you so far? Do you do, do you get the sense that um, we are uh, uh, primed for fundamental changes to American foreign policy, or do, does the personnel situation in the incoming Biden administration uh, seem to indicate uh, very little change to U.S. foreign policy? Well, there will be change in certain respects. I mean, I think the big change that I'm looking forward to, and I think is auspicious, is that Biden will uh, return to a series of international organizations that Trump departed from, like the World Health Organization, uh, and uh, he will rejoin some of the international treaties. Now, uh, I think it's fairly clear that they intend to renew the START II treaty, and uh, they'll uh, get back into the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, they say they want to get back into the JCPOA, uh, but it's not clear whether they're going to impose conditions upon the return to the Iran nuclear agreement. And I should imagine that they face a lot of domestic obstacles in, in doing that. So I think those, uh, uh, those steps are auspicious. I agree with the Biden people that the United States faces uh, a range of transnational uh, challenges, climate change, pandemics. I mean, it's been one of my themes for many years now that there's been a massive distortion of our priorities in spending so much on the military and neglecting those threats. And I think that the Biden administration will take those seriously, and I think that's all to the good. Now, whether there will be any kind of larger change in the fundamentals of American national security policy, uh, I think is much more doubtful. And, uh, you know, basically the people that he's bringing in uh, Blinken and Jake Sullivan and and so forth uh, do kind of represent the return of the blob, as James Garden has said, and uh, they're you know very much in tune with the larger consensus that's governed American foreign policy. Uh, that consensus, uh, to repeat myself, is that you can't have a liberal world order without having hostile relations with uh, Russia, China, Iran, etc. And uh, they all believe that. I, I do think that there's a certain amount of caution, recognition that the world has changed, that the American public is not in the mood for further military adventures. Uh, so I suspect that the Biden people will, uh, will recognize the existence of that domestic constraint and be very cautious. And even the neoconservatives like Bill Kristol uh, you know, have said, uh, let's hold off on uh, military invasions for a year or so until we uh, get things in order domestically. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I guess I would say that on the uh, essentials of national security policy, not much change, greater attention to uh, those transnational threats, which I think are uh, important to deal with. Uh, but the, the great problem is that we're constrained in terms of our resources. And if, if, you know, in the old days, it was always thought in that famous expression of Walter Lippmann's, uh, you got to pay for what you want and want only what you're willing to pay for. Mm 
And uh, if you weren't willing to do all of that, then there was a gap that opened up. And we have an enormous gap today with our $3.3 trillion budget deficit. Uh, so I don't really see any indication by the Biden administration of, of uh, how we're going to reshape those national priorities in a budgetary sense. I mean, the solution seems to be to print more money. And uh, that strikes me as, a, uh, from a long-term proposition, to be a, uh, a dangerous recourse. So you mentioned Iran uh, as one area where potentially the Biden administration will be incentivized to make, make a, a change, at least to the status quo ante. But uh, I think that given the context, given everything that's going on, it's, it seems to be very difficult. Um, so on the one hand, you have the Biden administration is going to be very interested in re-entering the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal because it's a legacy item of the Obama administration. But also they think that uh, that kind of relationship is valuable to have with Iran. At the same time, there's been at least some suggestion uh, by the president-elect and others that the relationship that we have with Saudi Arabia will become, will get a reevaluation uh, in the aftermath of the Khashoggi affair and, you know, the war in Yemen, where Trump vetoed twice, you know, two congressional attempts to put a halt to our involvement in that conflict. So this kind of Middle East question of how U.S. partnerships and alliances are organized and how we could possibly pull off a kind of shift from an over-reliance on our uh, Arab Gulf state partners, which don't do that much good for us, and uh, a kind of uh, maniacal focus on Iran as a primary enemy who we must extinguish. That seems plausible at least to be shaken loose a little bit in the, in the Biden years, but I wonder if you have some insight into how that can even be pulled off, assuming that that's the shift that they want to take. Um, what is required to actually pull this off in a context where domestic U.S. politics uh, really does not incentivize that kind of change? Iranian domestic politics are now very much in support of the, the hardliners and critical of moderates like Rouhani, who got uh, fooled into making a deal with the United States that the United States then violated and so on. Given all this difficulty, uh, I mean, what is the proper way forward with regard to Iran and our overall policy in the Middle East? Well, I support the return to the uh, Iran nuclear agreement, uh, and I would support the termination of support for Saudi Arabia and its war in Yemen. Uh, the big change that I would like to see, but which I think is extremely unlikely to be forthcoming from the Biden administration, is an alteration of our policy towards Syria. Uh, I think that there's been the makings of a deal uh, in which you basically recognize that the war is over, Assad won, you attempt to ensure humanitarian aid and peaceful reconstruction. And as part of that, uh, the Iranians sharply reduce their presence in Syria. Now, uh, that would be a very difficult thing to pull off. And it seems to me that there's no sympathy for that change of policy among the uh, personnel that Biden, the Biden has brought into the administration. I mean, Blinken, uh, especially uh, Sullivan also 
uh, are on record as supporting the overthrow of Assad and think that we ought to have done more. But that policy has been an utter failure. And uh, it's led, as I say, to this humanitarian disaster. I don't see that it's at all in American or Israeli interest to encourage a situation in which the Assad regime relies upon uh, Iranian militias. So let's try to fashion a new arrangement in which under joint Russian and American cooperation, uh, we restore Syria's territorial integrity, ensure autonomy for the Kurds in the northern part of the country, uh, reduce the Iranian presence in the country, and allow for reconstruction to go forward. I mean, as I say, this is a gigantic humanitarian disaster, and the United States contributed to that, and we need to reverse our policy in that regard. So I think, uh, you know, I would love to see a policy change like that. As I say, I think it's extremely unlikely that we will, and it's very difficult to see um, the return to the kind of uh, policy that Obama kind of hinted at is in the context of the Iran nuclear agreement to have a somewhat more even-handed relationship with the Iranians and the Arab Gulf states. But I agree with you that the policy that we've pursued in the Gulf, which is basically uh, letting the Saudis do what they want uh, so long as they buy a lot of American arms, has led to a humanitarian catastrophe, not only in Syria, but also in Yemen, and that should be changed, but I'm not too optimistic that it will be. If we shift from the Middle East over towards towards Asia, where it seems to me the primary concern among policy analysts in DC is the rise of China, how do you expect the Biden administration to handle uh, a rising China? Um, there's certainly some domestic politics at play that push them in the direction of continuing with a kind of hardline uh, position on trade. Um, and certainly there's some domestic abuses inside China um, that the Biden administration will uh, try to emphasize. Um, but in general, do you, how do you foresee the Biden approach to China? Well, I do think that it's largely going to be a continuation of the things that we've seen under Trump. Uh, Domestic politics does seem to dictate that. Uh, I would like to see a a, a total reevaluation of what we've been doing in Asia these many years. Uh, You know, the remarkable feature of American policy there is that we basically surrendered our industrial base to Chinese economic power, while at the same time uh, telling them, uh, oh, we're, we're going to be militarily supreme in your waters, and we'll take care of your security and enforce the rules. Well, I think American policy should have been something like the reverse of that, that is to have taken ser- much more seriously than we did uh, the rise of, uh, of, of Chinese uh, economic power and to have tried to protect the domestic economy better, while at the same time not pressing them on their immediate borders. I think any Chinese government would take sharp objection to that, as they have done. So I would like to see a a retrenchment on the military front and uh, negotiations with China to reduce the, the scale of the 
of the trade deficit. I think that's a serious problem. I don't think that we can measure our economic well-being purely in terms of uh, consumption. We have to look at some kind of balance between production and consumption, and that has gotten badly out of whack in the American system of political economy. You know, in effect, what happened is that the United States remade the world and the, the world remade America. And uh, economically, we're looking at a very different situation from what existed over the past generation, where China has emerged as a you know very strong player in the world economy, making the goods that people want. And I think there's dangers in trying to address that with uh, bludgeons. Uh, it's a fact. And uh, if the sum total of all of our efforts uh, is to simply divert supply chains from China to Vietnam and Mexico and such, then that won't do anything for the American middle class uh, and the working class. So that's a very complicated problem as to how one goes about addressing that. But in general, I do favor steps that will deal with the enormous size of that trade deficit with China. I think that needs to be addressed. Uh, and I anticipate that the Biden people will be working on that. Uh, I would caution that it's important to work on that in areas where it seems likely to be successful without excessive cost. And uh, also, if the sum total of our effort is simply to punish China and divert the supply chains elsewhere, I, I don't really see the point of that. Uh, I mean, obviously, one wants to have some you know, redundancy and resilience in supply chains with regard to medical supplies, as we learned this past year. And uh, that would be a particular sector to work on, and I'm in, all in favor of doing that. Uh, but I... I I don't think that we're going to see, uh, you know, any kind of a uh, big change by the Biden people from the approach that Trump has adopted. And I think that's unfortunate. We've mentioned uh, domestic politics and its influence on foreign policy a couple times now. Um, there seem to be sizable constituencies on both sides of the aisle that are kind of averse to U.S. military activism. Um, and that puts a, at least a little pressure on policymakers to, to change policy away from that. Um, how do you think domestic politics will or will not influence U.S. foreign policy in the next few years? Oh, gosh, that's so difficult to answer in, the, uh, in general terms. I think there is a tremendous amount of public skepticism about our world role. And the American people, in survey after survey, insist that we need to focus on our domestic priorities. And I, I agree with that. Uh, but that's also existed for a very long time. You know, those polls showed that disaffection from our uh, foreign engagement uh, 10 years ago and uh, mounting disgust with uh, the overall cost of the American role. So that is a restraint on the use of force, but somehow it never seems to translate into a reconsideration of any of our policies towards the RICs, Russia, Iran, China. Uh, and there are very powerful domestic constituencies that favor hostile relations with those countries. It's also not entirely clear 
how much public opinion really matters with regard to the public, the conduct of foreign policy. <laughs> all of that, all of that uh, resentment against uh, our our world role seldom seems to translate into any kind of serious uh, challenge to it. Uh, I, I mean, I do think it's meaningful with regard to the use of force, and that that will operate as some kind of a restraint on the Biden administration from, say, you know, introducing a large contingent into Syria. But I think you'd have to look at the uh, at particular sectors, particular aspects of foreign policy to answer that question in a really, you know, intelligible way. I will say one point that I, I wanted to make about China is that this spring kind of reminded me of 1946 when all of a sudden there was a series of developments that uh, from a variety of different uh, directions, Churchill's Iron Curtain speech, Kennan's Long tra- Telegram, uh, and other reports that emerged from the Washington establishment that crystallized a new consensus with regard to the, uh, the danger posed by Soviet Russia and the need for a countervailing American response. And uh, something like that seems to have happened uh, in the United States this year with regard to China. Uh, public opinion polls show a uh, dramatic worsening of the American public's opinion about China, and that's going to limit the ability of the uh, Biden administration to undertake any new initiatives in that regard. So, the, the but I, I must say that I regard that relationship as extremely dangerous to the United States in the long run. Uh, it, ch- China is not uh, Iraq. It's not Iran. It's not even Russia. I mean, they have this uh, uh, formidable domestic base of power, and there's no indication that that regime is tottering, in my view. And uh, so we've managed to get ourselves in a point in a series of confrontations with China, uh, and seem to regard it as our calling to uh, uh, to lead a coalition of states against it. And I think in the long run, that's extremely detrimental to American security and will threaten American security rather than preserve it. So, uh, but at the same time, to, to respond to your question, it's very difficult to see much in the way of domestic pushback against that. Yeah, it almost seems like um, some Americans embrace the idea of having a, a kind of singular enemy abroad into which they can sink uh, many of their frustrations. Taiwan well, first. Right. Um, Uyghurs first. Yeah. I, with regard to the Uyghurs, yeah, I think that what the Chinese have done is terrible, although I don't know the extent to which we actually know the extent of their operations, and I'm a bit suspicious of some of the reports that have been published in that regard. But we need to choose our battles wisely with regard to China. And uh, these internal questions for the Chinese are something that they're just not going to budge on. And so I think that uh, sanctions against them for that sort of thing have a purely symbolic value. Uh, they're really intended to kind of rally a larger anti-China consensus uh, rather than to actually improve the conditions of the Uyghurs in any material respect, because that's fundamentally beyond the reach of U.S. policy to do that. 
And uh, so I think it's important to uh, pick our battles wisely in that regard and to return to a situation where we can actually have constructive discussions with the Chinese leadership on the array of problems that confront us. Well, that's a good segue into my final question. You have advocated for what you call a new internationalism. Um, describe what that is and how we might go about pursuing it. Well, one part of a new internationalism is simply the old internationalism, and that is respect for uh, the territorial integrity and political independence of other states. Uh, so, in other words, an end to uh, the regime change policies that the United States has adopted. Uh, and I'm, I, I think that there's a lot of merit in those older ideas. If you want to get a good sense of what those consisted of, uh, read depictions of FDR's good neighbor policy. Uh, you know, the idea being that you would, you want to help other states with economic development, have friendly relations with them, but you don't seek to overthrow their governments if you don't like them. And uh, you respect th their right to be free from external intervention. So that's one aspect of the new internationalism. And the other is uh, to work on all of these transnational problems that we face. Uh, you know, that was very evident to me over the last decade that, that we had a potential crisis in waiting with, the, with regard to the threat of pandemics. The global health experts had, uh, had pointed to that uh, for many years. And then when it hit, we discovered that the preparations that the federal government had made for that sort of thing were just practically nothing. And uh, we weren't prepared in the least to deal with it. Uh, so that, in my view, requires international cooperation. We need to uh, work with other states in devising uh, good responses to those challenges. And so that would be one instance in which a new internationalism would, would seek to uh, address all of those transnational problems and uh, come up with cooperative responses. I, uh, I think that's also true with regard to the uh, danger of climate change, although I do worry that the predominant approaches on the democratic left towards dealing with that will uh, not be uh, particularly well chosen. I'm pretty skeptical about uh, seeing the solution in terms of wind and solar and to uh, to do that in such a way that we end up with uh, electricity costs approaching what Germany has experienced once it invested widely in wind and solar and closed down its nuclear plants. Uh, that would be very dangerous. I think we need to look much more closely at, at uh, uh, nuclear power. I mean, if the threat of climate change is as serious as the alarmists say, I think that nuclear power has to be part of the mix of solutions to that. And uh, while Biden's program has a few rhetorical gestures in that regard, uh, I think that's pretty unpopular uh, among the Democrats. And so we're very unlikely to, uh, to, to see much progress in that regard. So in principle, I'm in favor of a big effort in that regard, but I'm pretty skeptical of the of the programs that the Democrats are likely to come up with. I also find it kind of incredible that the Democrats have adopted this attitude towards uh, energy security that's just entirely dismissive of the U.S. oil industry. I mean, we're looking at a situation in which 
the uh, uh, the oil import deficit is uh, likely to explode in the years ahead as domestic production declines. And I, uh, I think that we have an interest in avoiding a very large oil import deficit like the one we had back in the day. And uh, we should try to you know, preserve that industry uh, through some kind of a selective variable import tariff. And uh, that is an idea that has absolutely no purchase among the uh, among the Democrats. But it's actually an important thing to do because it, it contributes to the uh, the trade deficit. Uh, if we if we re- go back to that situation that once existed when we were importing 12 million barrels a day, and back in 2008, that played a big role in the financial crisis. That created a 330 billion dollar hole in the balance of payments. And uh, I think the Democrats have this tendency to just demonize energy production rather than approaching it in a kind of responsible manner, uh, recognizing that we're not going to get off oil immediately. That's a long-term proposition. Uh, The use of energy, even fossil fuel energy, is important for the maintenance of people's standards of living. And uh, so... That's a very complicated problem to get into uh, the proper mix of policies to deal with the global challenge like climate change. Uh, But I think we need to do it. Uh, As I say, I'm just a bit skeptical of the approach that the Democrats are likely to, uh, to take in that regard. Well, that last point, you and I probably have a lot of back and forth disagreement to to have, uh, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, you know, oh, well, I think, you got uh, to tell me what your disagreements are. <laughs> well, I think in general, uh, it, we've had rather enough of the government picking domestic economic winners and losers and protecting industries via tariffs uh, usually results in concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. And it's, I think, basically wrong. The oil companies don't really need more taxpayer help. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. If I could just say, I, I agree in principle with with your point there. I understand that that's a uh, that's a real concern, but I think we also have to take account of the of, to look at this from a long term standpoint, and to realize that uh, you know the Saudis uh, can at any time undertake a price war that uh, flattens domestic production and putting them in a position uh, two or three years down the road to restrict production and jack up prices. And uh, the, the, uh, I mean, I do enormous damage to themselves though. uh, Which part of that would, would do enormous damage to their zones? Well, if the Saudis cut off oil, they're doing enormous damage to themselves. And then they're crossing their fingers that whatever targeted, uh, effect this is supposed to have on the United States or some other country probably, you know, might not happen. Well, yeah, it, it depends on what they do. And, you know, one would have to look at the uh, the particulars of that. But, but they would have a, a very considerable degree of market power. And uh, the, 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 the... Much reduced, though, since the 70s, right? Yes, it is. But... Uh, I wouldn't look to these current conditions with low oil price as being a, uh, a permanent feature of the scene. 
And, uh, you know, you have massive cuts in uh, oil exploration budgets that's occurring across the board. You're likely to see the decimation of the U.S. shale industry over the next year or so uh, as a consequence of the maintenance of a low price. And if, if in three or four years that situation changes, uh, uh, I think from the long-term point of view, some kind of variable tariff ought to be considered to to protect domestic industry from these uh, price wars undertaken by the other large producers. Anyway, as you say, that's something that's a it's a complicated question. Uh, I just throw it into the uh, mix because it's one of my wild ideas that seems to attract opposition from just about everyone, and so uh, you know, just to, just just to further place myself outside the various Overton windows that I'm already outside of, I'd, uh, you know, I want to, I want to throw that into the mix. <laughs> hey, this is the podcast to do it at. <laughs> right. uh, David, uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Great. It's been great. I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, that's all the time we have. Thank you to our production team, Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman, and Jonathan Allen. Thanks to you all for listening. And as always, to continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at CatoFP. And if you like the show, leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.